my early years of ministry here in Pine Bush, I attended every Mother's Day to preach a Mother's Day message, to preach something from God's Word that was relevant to the subject of family life and particularly the, the dignity and the duties of Christian motherhood. Our church back then was largely populated by young mothers, um, many of whom were not raised in Christian homes and Christian families, many who had poor uh, role models of mothering in a climate where biblical standards of family life existed. And we were in a culture in which much of the biblical standards of family life were under severe attack. So I felt it always necessary to take advantage of the Mother's Day celebration to address topics related to Christian motherhood. Recent years I've departed from that practice, um, finding less of a need as that generation passed and, um, and fulfilled their, their work of mothering and raised a new generation of young ladies that pretty much had their heads squarely centered upon their shoulders uh, with ideas of what Christian motherhood involved and uh, they probably knew more from the examples of their moms than I could ever tell them so another thing I think happened was um, I had a pastor friend he'd always asked me to come and preach at his church always seemed on Mother's Day always seemed I was always in another church expecting a Mother's Day sermon he had problems I think sometimes relating to the women of the church so he thought that his Mother's Day messages would probably fall really flat and um, but um, I thought it would be good that uh, as our church has changed as we have uh, uh, people who are now grandmoms and uh, we're moving into many of us into a, another season of our lives um, it might be good to uh, address uh, the subject of Mother's Day I think more and more it's uh, all, all women are kind of celebrated in Mother's Day because I mean even if, even if you're just a child you made someone a mother I figure somewhere along the line somebody ought to say happy Mother's Day to everybody because we all have a part in the Mother's Day celebration um, but I thought it would be good to address particularly um, a passage of scripture in which one particular woman though her motherhood is not really spoken of yet a life is spoken of that is a model, I think, for Christian living in whatever God has called us to, whether it's a life of singleness, whether it's a life of marriage, whether it's a life that is lengthy or a life that is short. We have a woman in the scriptures whose name is Anna, Anna of the tribe of Asher, whose story is briefly told to us in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2, verse 36 to 38. But since it's in connection with the larger narrative of Jesus being presented by his parents at the temple in Jerusalem at the time when offerings were to be given uh, uh, the offerings for the firstborn were to be rendered I thought it would be good to read the entire passage beginning at verse 22 so please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 I'm going to read verse 22 to the end of verse 38 it's verse 36 to 38 in which we're told the story of Anna when the time it came when the time came from their purification according to the law of Moses 
they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which was the offering that the poor would bring. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Then she was a widow until um, for 84 years. Uh, The translation here is, I don't think, the accurate one. But her widowhood lasted, it would appear, from at least what the text seems to say in the original, for a period of some 84 years. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke is the gospel that seems to celebrate women's presence and ministry in the life of Jesus and I think ultimately when you go into the book of Acts in the church of the Lord Jesus like no other writer. When Matthew would give us the birth account of Jesus, it's to Joseph that he puts center stage. But Luke takes the spotlight and places it clearly on his mother, Mary. He also highlights John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, along with his father, Zechariah. In fact, he seemed to have, right from the beginning of Luke, something of a a man being brought to the fore, and he's often followed by a female counterpart. Now, you see that with respect to Zechariah, and then we're introduced to Elizabeth, here in the account of what happens in the temple in Jerusalem, we have Simeon, who is followed soon by Anna. They seem to be placed together in a pair. Uh, you have Jesus in the synagogue of Nazareth, 
speaking about Israel's history with reference to Gentiles being blessed by God and he would speak uh, not just of Naaman the Syrian but also of the widow of Zarephath you have uh, a Pharisee by the name of Simon who receives Jesus into his home and there's a sinful woman who comes in and anoints the Lord's feet Um, it's Luke who mentions the women who were with Jesus along with the twelve in chapter 8 of this gospel he mentions many of them by name Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna and he says many others then you have an account of Jesus going to heal uh, the daughter of Jairus and then there's a woman with a hemorrhage that comes to Jesus and they seem to be locked together in the narrative Uh, you have um, mention of Martha and Mary of course in the 10th chapter Uh, you have the man who lost his sheep the shepherd who lost his sheep and then a woman who comes along and she loses a coin so what I'm saying is that you have Luke bringing together women whenever usually in, in pairing with a man sometimes it's just the women he focuses upon because Luke in essence is a barrier breaking gospel so Luke brings to our attention not only women who were shunted to the side of influence and dignity and importance in the ancient world but also the lepers who were outcasts and he brings them center stage he brings the Gentiles center stage and he basically is telling us that all of these people who are outcasts who were the at the edges of society these were the very people embraced by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and so this gospel is filled with female figures of prominence female figures of spiritual eminence and maybe no one is as striking as this person Anna that we're going to be looking at God willing this morning we're told a great deal about her in a very short span of time there's just two verses that are here and yet in that space of just two verses we're told something about her office she was a prophetess we're told something about her name she's named Anna we're told something about the tribe she was part of the tribe of Asher we're told something about her age which was either 84 or 105 depending on how you view the information Luke is giving I think it's 105 you're given something about her practices in her life and then her special part in the story of Jesus so that's basically what we want to look at this morning we want to look at Anna's office her name, her tribe, her age her practices in her life and her part in the story of Jesus so I want to begin first of all with her office we're told there was a prophetess Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher rather strange isn't it we're accustomed to think of uh, the time that was from Malachi the last Old Testament prophet to John the Baptist that we had the silent years we had the years of famine for the word of God there was no prophet in Israel and yet in Jerusalem at the temple there was before John began his ministry a prophetess by the name of Anna and likely because of her advanced age she was there for a long period of time people coming to her people hearing her 
there was a whole group of people that were available to her to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Evidently, I don't think this was the first time she was speaking to those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She herself was a woman waiting for that promised expectation, that promise, pr- promise of God to send a deliverer, to send a redeemer, that there would be the redemption of Israel from bondage to foreign nations. There would be the redemption of Israel from the power of their sins. There would be the redemption of the people of God through the presence of a coming redeemer. That was her hope. That was her confidence. And she took her part as a prophetess in the temple, looking to instruct others and encourage others and to teach others of the ways of God in in expectation of the promises of God being fulfilled. Now, again, might be a surprise to us, but the fact is, biblically, she's part of a long line of women who are given this same title of a prophetess. Holy women, honored by God, to be special vehicles of divine revelation. Women who, at some points, their very words are part of Holy Scripture. We have the song of Miriam. We have the song of Deborah. We have words of Scripture that are words of these prophetesses. Miriam, the prophetess in Exodus 15, 20, and 21, You might say, yeah, but what she said was just a recapitulation of what Moses had already said. Yes, that's true. But she's still called a prophetess. This is what I want to point out. Deborah, who not only is a prophetess, but also a judge, a mother in Israel. In Judges 4 and verse 4, we have a prophetess by the name of Huldah, who in the time of King Josiah prophesied in the book of 2 Kings 22-14. We have even after the exile in Babylon in the days of Nehemiah, a woman by the name of Noadiah, Noadiah, in Nehemiah 6 and verse 14, we have the wife of Isaiah the prophet, who is called the prophetess. That's the woman he went into and bore children with. Yet she is called the prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. And then these Old Testament prophetesses um, that we come before Anna are followed from Anna into the promises from Joel's words in Joel's chapter 2 fulfilled in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost about the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit who were told your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And then we have daughters of Philip in the book of Acts chapter 21 of the book of Acts who prophesied. And then you have the women of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul tells them they got to wear head, some kind of coverings to their head while they prayed and they prophesied. So there is a woman who did pray and they were prophesied. And then I think the fact that you have these women being paired with these men. I mean, we're told that Simon, and not that he was a prophet, but that he is one upon whom the Holy Spirit came. And to whom the Holy Spirit gave revelation. And I think that we can assume that such was true with Anna. Anna had received the Holy Spirit in anticipation of the coming Pentecost, the Pentecostal outpouring, that she was given the Spirit and she was an inspired vehicle of divine revelation. I need to pause just to say to you that whatever we say or think about male leadership in the church, now we say and think a good deal about the subject of male leadership in the church, whenever we think of the distinctive qualifications of the pastoral office with regard to males who occupy that pastoral office, we must also make room in our calculus 
foundations for the fact that prophecy was an equal opportunity function in the church. Prophecy was not just given to men. Prophecy was given to women as well. We must not allow male headship or male leadership to drive us to bludgeon our women, to marginalize them, to silence them. Half of the redeemed community of the people of God not to benefit from their giftedness, not to benefit from how God has taught them and what God has shown them and what God can use them to be and to, to do for us in our own lives. I think pastors that don't call upon the women of their church to teach them are fools. They just don't want to learn what God would have them to know. Because they can't minister effectively to the people of God as the people of God that includes men and women in the same church if they don't know the needs of women. And they don't, they're not sensitive to the sensibilities of women. Because I know as a pastor, I've made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake through my ministry just by saying things out of my own ignorance that have just been offensive and wrong. And I'm thankful that God has given us godly women in our assembly whose gifts I know I need. And we all need for the good of this assembly, for our spiritual well-being. Anna was a prophetess. Vehicle of divine revelation. Let's not preclude women from serving. Let's not preclude women from blessing. Let's not preclude women from giving help and, and, and support and instruction to a church that desperately needs the input of all of its Holy Spirit-filled members. The second thing we're told is her name is Anna. Her name is Anna. You might say, what's the big deal about that? Well, I would just say, first of all, it's a very odd name for a Palestinian woman of her time. There are, through the writings of Jewish writers like Josephus and other sources, something like 247 names of women in Palestine that we know about. Would you like to see that list? I don't, I've, I've not looked at that list. I've just been told that from archaeological, archaeological finds and other writings, we know of the names of 247 women in Palestine. And this woman, Anna, is the only one who bears this name. It's a name, however, that does Grecianize. It's a Greek version of the Hebrew name Hannah. And we certainly read of Hannah in the Old Testament, this name of Samuel's mother. The song of Hannah that's found in 1 Samuel. And Jews of this period, interestingly enough, they, they preferred not to use biblical names for their sons and their daughters. Uh, they viewed those personages of scripture, at least in biblical times, as being very spiritual, very holy people. And there was a reserve of naming people. I mean, even the name Mary is thought to actually be not so much going back to Miriam, the sister of Moses, but Mariamne, who was one of the wives of, the, of, the, of one of the Herods. They think that's one of the reasons that name is prevalent. The only exception seems to be Sarah. Now, a lot of, at least six Herods that were known, known of, 
But um, why am I bringing this up? Well, because it may well be that Anna was a Jew of the of diaspora, though the dispersion, the foreign Jews, the Jews that lived at a great distance away, and she's one example of the tribes of Israel coming back home. We're told that she's of the tribe of Asher. That's my third point. And I think it needs to be connected with the name Anna. The realization she is said to be the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And this is peculiar as well. Because this is the only tribe of the New Testament that's not Judah, Benjamin, or Levi. Remember, the priests were Levites, so we read about Levites. We know about Saul, who was a Benjaminite. And we know of Jesus, who comes from Judah, and other, uh, others of the tribe of Judah. For, for the province of Judea, was populated mainly by those of the tribe of Judah. The northern ten tribes were taken into captivity in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And from that uh, uh, captivity or that uh, deportation from away from the land, uh, the popular idea of the ten lost tribes has come about. But apparently in biblical times, not all of them were lost. Not all of the tribes were lost. And there are archaeological finds that do indicate that there were people that knew their tribal descent in various places in the ancient world. And that when there were people that came back from the captivity, that were able to come back and had knowledge of their tribes, they would settle in parts of Galilee. Of course, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. But it later came into political union with the southern province of Judea. So that you have in the Bible, you have Jews going to Jerusalem in Judea, going back up into Galilee and bypassing Samaria, because that's where all the people of mixed races were. That's where a, a distinct people existed that sort of divided the, the, the people of um, the Old Covenant of the ten tribes and the remaining tribe of Judah. So there were some people that knew their tribal backgrounds. And we know that there were people from the tribe of Asher that did settle, not a lot of them, but there were some. There was a settlement in the western part of Galilee towards the Mediterranean. And then there was also in the Diaspora or the Dispersion there wasn't a place called Media, which is in modern Iran, western Iran. There was also a group of people from the tribe of Asher. And the fact that Anna's name was not a typical Palestinian name, again, I think may indicate that she came from that place in the east, that part of western Iran, from which people from the tribe of Asher um, lived and uh, did exist and she came maybe with her dad maybe as a married woman well we don't know but she came to Jerusalem she came in the hope of the gathering of the tribes that was the hope of the Old Testament scriptures Isaiah 49 verse 6 51 and verse 7 I won't ask you to turn there but both of those passages speak of the fact that the tribes would come back to the central place of Zion, of worship at the temple, of Jerusalem being the place where the nation 
would be reconstituted and brought back together, not just as one southern tribe, but that all of the tribes would be gathered together to comprise one unified people of God. That's Anna's confidence. That's Anna's expectation. That's Anna's hope. So we have this woman returning to Jerusalem, coming to the temple, being one of the people that would be the first to be there when the tribes are regathered and to come to encourage others to wait for the expectancy of Jerusalem's redemption. And we have a statement with respect to her age. We're told that she was advanced in years. How old? Well, that depends on how we understand the construction of Luke's words. We know that she was married for seven years. Seven years, then widowhood. From her virginity to her widowhood, there were seven years. And then as a widow, there seems to be the notion that she was 84 years from her time of her widowhood. I know some people think it's all inclusive. She was 84 years when she was in the temple. I think the reason that Luke is telling us seven years, he's dividing her, her life up. He's dividing her life up from a seven-year period when she was a married woman, an 84-year period when she was a widow woman. And 84 years is seven times uh, 12, right? 12, 24, 36, 48, 60, 72, 84. Yeah, 7 times 12 is uh, 84. And then we think that since she was married for 7 years, she probably got married as a young teenager, which is what uh, was common at the time. So probably maybe around 14. So her life is divided up into 15 sevens. Don't ask me what the significance of it is. I don't know. But I know there was two sevens, 14 years, of preparing her life for a wedding. Preparing her life to be a mother. Preparing her life to be a wife. To live in a domestic bliss with a husband whom God would provide. She received the training of a Jewish home to be an able, faithful, Proverbs 31 woman. To raise her children to the glory of God and the fear and admonition of the Lord. To be the sort of woman her husband would bless and say, many have done well, but you have exceeded them all. But something happened she didn't plan on. Her husband died. And so that third seven-year period of her marriage came to an end, and she's now a widow. And from that time forward, she lived as a widow. Now, we're not told what happened during that period of widowhood. There's probably a period of time if she had children, she was still raising her children. We're not told exactly when it was she returned to Jerusalem. Just there was this lengthy period of time. And whenever it was, she discharged her duties with reference to her children. Perhaps discharged her duties as the daughter of Phanuel, to caring for her parents, doing all the things a godly Jewish woman would do. And all those things were discharged and out of the way She comes to the temple. She finds her place in the house of God. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that she lived at the temple. Now, there were rooms in the temple I guess she could have lived in. Um, but I don't know that she did. Maybe she lived in a room by the court of the women. I mean, I think it's just an expression, such as we read later on in the book of Acts, of how the disciples were continually in the temple. They were continually in the It didn't mean they lived there. It just means daily they went there. 
part of their daily activities was to worship, to come to God's house, to offer up prayers and to offer up sacrifices in the temple of the Lord. And so Anna began a life as a widow, a life as a widow connected with the house of God. She did not depart from the temple, probably except to go home, to have meals or whatever else, but she was regularly right there in the temple of God. We're told she was worshiping with fasting and with prayer night and day. She was there when the morning sacrifices would be offered. She was there when the evening sacrifices would be offered. She was there when the prayers of morning and evening would be offered. She was there engaging in the discipline of fasting in conjunction with her praying. She was a woman who sought her God. She's a woman who served her God. She's a woman who sought to glorify the name of her God. And she's ready for when God will fulfill the promises he had given. She's prepared for this God to enter into human history in the very way he said he would. And come for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so she has a right, rightful part in the story of Jesus. Because Jesus' parents brought Jesus to the temple to fulfill the requirements of the law with respect to sacrifice and with respect to the redemption of the firstborn. And just as Simeon was given to understand that his life in a sense was prolonged until he would see the salvation of God it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he came in the Spirit into the temple. And he saw the parents bringing in the child Jesus to do for him in accordance with the custom of the law. He said, bingo, that's it. This is the fulfillment of the promise of God. This is the expectation I've lived longing for. He takes Jesus up in his arms. He prays that prayer, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel. But as Luke is accustomed to not just present the joy of a man in the face of revelation of the Savior, and the revelation of the Lord's Christ. So this woman, Anna, received a similar revelation. She too, coming up to the temple at that very hour. She sees and she knows. She's given to understand. And then she begins to give thanks to God. Now the peculiar thing about this verse in verse 38, to give thanks to God, is that it's an unusual word, not found in other places in the New Testament. But it is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament with reference to a psalm, Psalm 79.
that begins this way. It's called the Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 79. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. The nations have come to be ruling over Jerusalem, ruling over the covenant people of God. There is no king. The nations have dominion over them. They've defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. You don't think this would be a passage significant to the mind of a woman who's waiting in expectation for the redemption of Jerusalem? That the nations have entered into the inheritance of God, defiling the temple of God, laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of heaven for food. Of course, these are the things that happened in the history of the Babylonian captivity in particular. But then the question, how long, O Lord, verse 5, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Lord, how long must we wait? She's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think Psalm 79 would would be most upon our mind and heart in our prayers. How long? Lord, how long? How long? Verse 8, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. She's looking for divine atonement. She's looking for the divine provision of his grace and compassion and his help to the lowly and the needy. The psalm concludes with the words of verse 13. But we are your people, the sheep of your pastures. Or I'm sorry, but we your people, we who are your people, we who are the sheep of your pastures. You know what we'll, we'll do? We'll do what Anna did. We'll give thanks. Very same word. Very same unique word. Giving thanks to you forever. This is a dilemma when you're preaching and you haven't written in your notes what you studied and you just can't think just what that word is. So I had the word before me. I'd be able to tell you exactly what the root of it is. And the root of it is very peculiar, very different. And it brings in a whole element of understanding that at this point I'm at a loss to tell you. I'll try to tell you tonight or some of the time. But it's a very significant word that's used with reference to understanding Anna's whole attitude and her whole expectation and the way that God works in the fulfilling of the word of his promise. She sees this is the, what, a, what we've been waiting for, that what we've been longing for. The answer to the question, O oh Lord, how long has been answered now? Like Simeon, her eyes have seen your salvation and she began to give thanks to God. And then she began to speak of him. She began to tell others of him. The Messiah has come. The promises are fulfilled. The king has been born. The nations and their dominion over us will come to an end. The kingdom of God will be ushered in. The redemption of Jerusalem is at hand. He takes a part in telling the story of Jesus and declaring the worth of Jesus and speaking forth the merits of Jesus, preparing others to receive the Lord Jesus.
That's our story. That's Anna's story. It's a story of her office as a prophetess. It's a story of her name as a foreign-born member of the diaspora come back home. Even as God promised, He would gather His people from the nations. Her tribe of Asher, again the northern tribes, being received back in a unified people of God. Her age, serving the Lord as a godly woman should, being raised in expectation of marriage and childbirth, living as a wife in the period of seven years, and then in her widowhood, fulfilling her work, doing her duty to children, to parents, and then doing a work of service to the temple, to the house of God, to the people of God. In our activities of prayer and of fasting, and then of telling of the fulfillment of the promise in the person of the Lord Jesus. Well, we've seen the story. In conclusion, what's the significance of all of this? Let me just suggest that it's the significance of a life well lived. Of a life well lived. Let me endeavor to express what I mean by a life well lived. Well, a life well lived in the light of God's word should be a life that in the first place is grounded in worship. It's grounded in the worship of God. God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage. It wasn't just to make them free. It was to make them free to worship. It was to bring them out of Egyptian bondage where pagan gods dominated and idolatrous practices prevailed. And God wanted a people to worship Him. And God is still in the business of seeking a people that will worship Him. Worshiping Him in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well. He said, the hour is coming and now is when those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. And Anna is an example of a worshiping woman who saw the importance of the house of God. Of course, in that time, it was the temple in Jerusalem. But you know, the house of God today is still in existence. And it exists in assemblies where two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus. Not necessarily cathedrals or ornate buildings, but where God's people meet, where God's people gather for God's people worship. There Jesus has said, I will be in their midst. He's promised to be among his people. We read of the vision that John had at Patmos in the book of Revelation, where he sees the glorified Son of Man. And where is he? He's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, which Revelation tells us are the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus on the Lord's Day comes and meets with his people. Jesus comes to bless his people. And we are to be a people grounded in worship. Worship is not a convenience. It's a commitment. It's a necessity. It should be a joy and a delight to gather together as the people of God. Do you feel that way about the Lord's Day? What a joy it is to anticipate coming together with God's people. I mean, some people just, ah, it's a burden. 
coming to church, going to church on Sunday. And then if you're rightly thinking, you'd say, I wish I could do it every day. I wish I could be together with God's people every day. It's the attitude of the writer of the 84th Psalm who said one thing, I'm sorry, 27th Psalm. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will also seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I mean, in a real sense, that's what glory is going to be. It's the temple of God is to be among men, not in a physical structure, but with the presence of Jesus in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the great thing that's going to make heaven heaven is His presence. That's what makes heaven heaven. It's not streets of gold. It's not all these riches and all this prosperity. I mean, it's an ugly thing that we live in a day in which something like the prosperity gospel masquerades as Christianity. It's simply not. It's a farce. Reading of preachers who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars that they've gained upon the backs of people they've made, they've lied to, making false promises to. You sow your seeds so that I can live royally, not that you would get benefits or rich. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. Just a religious pyramid scheme that they're engaged in, and it's all bogus, and it's false to the core. It's not the rich of the world, it's the poor of the world that God's made rich in faith. That's what we're to take as the measure of what a good life is, or rich in faith. It's not how many, much money we have in the bank. It's not what our retirement account is, is, has grown to. It's being rich in the blessings of the gospel. And as a model of the life well lived, as her life was grounded in the worship of God. But it was also it was a life that was guided by the disciplines of prayer and of fasting. Again, I don't think fasting is something we highlight a whole lot in our day-to-day, but it is certainly something that's found in Scripture, not as often as you'd see it, see prayer, but yet it's something that does recognize that we man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and that we eat to live, not live to eat. We're not to make a gods of our bellies, gods of our appetites that there is this measure of restraint and a measure of discipline even over the things that we eat and the things that we, we, we consume and so there is a measure of discipline that we engage in in eating habits and also in our prayer life humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might lift us up confessing our need of him confessing our dependence upon him there's something, again, it just doesn't come naturally. You just don't wake up in the morning and just say, well, let's, go to, let's, let's pray. You have to determine you're going to pray. It's just not there. You know, I wake up in the morning and I want to know, you know, the late scores on the West Coast. I want to find out, you know, what, what did the Yankees do if they were playing out in California? That's the first thought that comes to my mind. 
Or, or what's, what new thing is in the newspapers about this person or that person or what some celebrity has done? These are the things that tend to be forf- in the forefront of our thinking. Prayer is a discipline. It's not something that's native to us. That's why they had to say, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer is something to be taught. It's not just something that comes naturally. Anna was a woman who was determined to be disciplined in her prayer life, coming into the house of God to seek the Lord. May it all be true of us. It's a hard discipline, but there's, they say there's no, there's no gain without pain, and we're not going to gain much in the Christian life if we're not people who pray. Jesus spoke parables that meant people ought always to pray and not to faint. That's the easiest thing. It's the easiest thing to faint. It's the easiest thing just to give up. I think of many, many prayer times that started out like a house of fire and then just petered out at the end. And just to hang in there, to discipline myself, to pray, is not an easy thing, but yet it's something that yields great rewards. Holding communion with God, knowing the blessings of God. But then her life was also a life that was gladdened by hope. Gladdened by hope. Not only grounded in worship and guided by discipline, but it was a life that was gladdened by hope. How do you hang in there as a Christian, doing the same old, same old? Every week, coming to church. Every week, doing the same things. Every day, same disciplines. Bible reading, prayer, seeking to do the things that we know is in our best spiritual interests. Well, it's the hope that gladdens the heart. That these promises of God are true and sure and trustworthy. That, there's, that it, it will be well with the righteous. Again, the same psalm about that aspiration to be in house, the house of God also has the words, I had fainted unless I had believed. I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So easy to faint. But if you believe you'd see the goodness of the Lord, you'd hang in there another day, and the next day after that, and the next day after that, because you believe you will see God's goodness. Maybe it's the how long of the Psalms that you must raise, but yet there's no question. God is a God who watches over His Word to perform it. And so as His people, we can live in hope, be gladdened by hope. Let's lead to the final thing. She persevered in hope. She persevered in hope. And for the whole part, I put all G's, grounded in worship, guided by discipline, gladdened in hope, governed by perseverance. Governed by perseverance. Perseverance again that is aligned with our hope to press on, to continue on, not to lose heart, not to give up. If you really believe there was gold in them hills, <laughs> you'd get out the pick, you'd start picking away. Industriously and laboriously and continually until you struck the load. 
And the Christian life isn't all that different. There's great gain. There's great riches. There's great blessings. Don't lose heart until you've come to the full embrace and full realization of all the good God has stored up for those who wait for him, for those who look to him, for those who trust in him. My word to you on this Mother's Day is, yes, honor all mothers, but let's keep Anna in our thoughts. Let's keep Anna in our thoughts as an example of a life well-lived, a life grounded in worship, guided by discipline, gladdened by hope, governed by perseverance. And may God help us to go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time in the scriptures and pray that your blessing would be upon your people who have heard this word and you'd encourage our hearts in it as we'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we are going to have the Lord's Supper. Let's prepare for it by uh, turning in our hymnals. Let's sing, uh, let's sing 188. 188. Fountain filled with blood drawn from.